Good evening. Okay, Acts chapter 6. We're going to read the whole chapter since it's only 15 verses. And we're going to see more of the second part of the chapter tonight. Now in those days when the, numbers, the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out among you the seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And, and the word ministry there is deaconry. Uh, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the, and, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and, they, and when they had prayed, laid their hands on them. Then the word of God spread and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council look, looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. The Lord will bless the reading of his word. So we had considered last week the first part uh, about how there was a problem uh, with uh, the Illinois' widows that were, that were kind of forgotten in the distribution and how the, the apostles decided to, to uh, ask the people for, for them to choose among them seven men that were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom so that they could be applied to serve at the tables and make sure that the distribution was done uh, equitably. And uh, we had uh, seen that they were all men with Greek names, so that they, the apostles were very wise in, in kind of backing up the people that chose uh, these men to take care of their own. 
and uh, by doing so, probably taking care of all, all the other, other widows as well. So it was obviously a good move because these men uh, were, were full of the Spirit and of wisdom and of faith. And uh, the, what came afterwards is kind of a, uh, an indication that even though Satan tried to, to attack the assembly... Uh, with the attack, the church with uh, an inward attack, with uh, division and, and strife and problems between them, it was fixed fairly fairly quickly, in a very wise way, and uh, then we see in verse seven that the the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So God was obviously blessing in a mighty way uh, what the apostles had decided. But we had seen that the, the word, the word uh, distribution and the word ministry in verse 1 and verse 4 were both the same word, uh, dickenry. So, so what the disciples were, these men were asked to do, serving at the table, and what the apostles were doing, ministering the word, is actually the same word. So it's both serving, but in different capacity, in different ways. So, the, now it's, it's, it's come to Stephen, and we have seen that Stephen and, uh, and uh, Philip were both of the seven, and they were both uh, kind of moved to different ministries fairly quickly. And we know that Philip, in chapter 21, is, is called Philip the Evangelist who was amongst the seven. So he was recognized as one of these guys, one of these men that were chosen to do some deacon work in the church. So Stephen, verse 8, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs amongst the people. So he, he was a very special person because of his... Uh, is, is the fact that he was used in a very mighty way by the Spirit of God. And we, we, we shall see some of the reasons for that. And then, uh, a, lot, a lot like the Lord himself, he was falsely accused for things that he, he was supposedly doing, and he actually wasn't doing that, but they accused him for doing that. And uh, I was thinking of, I know we're not in chapter 7 yet, but I was thinking of how... In chapter 7, he starts with the God of glory at the beginning of his speech, and then he ends with the glory of God at the end of his speech and seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he, he starts with the, the God of glory and ends with the glory of God, the, 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 the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So we're going to maybe look at verse 7. Before we go on to, to uh, the rest of the chapter, that maybe some of the reasons why this, like the questions that uh, our brother had put on the website, uh, about maybe, maybe some of the reasons why it happened there in, in verse 7, why the, God, why the Word of God was spreading so much. Four, four things. Yes. We know that they, they were praying, the, the 
also for spending time in prayer and then teaching, prayer and teaching. And then they were serving, that is, the deacons were serving, and then giving. Um, they were um, helping each other in the church. And so people who saw this were, were attracted to that. They saw the testimony of the believers among themselves and before the Lord. And they, uh, they of course, the apostles were, were praying and teaching. So those four things, part of the reason, I think, for the uh, increase in the number of believers. Yes. I think part of the reason, too, why the Word of God spread is because they dealt with this problem. And so, if you get problems in the local church, it's not going to help spiritual growth, and it's not going to help the growth of the church, because usually when you get problems in the church, people go away, right? And uh, I think it's also important, and that's probably one reason why it also spread, is that the apostles stay focused on the main task because they say in verse 4 but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word even though they were they took care of the practical issues and it's necessary for a church to be involved in that but the main focus of the church is not social goal so that has happened, that has actually been a major issue, especially in the last 100 years, where, you know, Christian organizations have started out well, and all what was left after the third generation was just the social part. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might be doing a lot of good stuff, but they're not doing what's said in verse 4. And that is, you know, many, many organizations that are doing a lot of good stuff started out as Christian organizations when they were focused on the gospel and the word of God. So the word of ministry, or the minister of the word, obviously the gospel was a big part of it. Because the, the outcome was many came to the faith. So without the gospel, it's very hard to see a, move, a movement uh, as far as people getting saved if you don't preach the gospel. So this is a surely part of the ministry of the word was the gospel and the fact that, like Leonard was saying, if the spirit of God is grieved, there will be no work, there will be no no movement. And we know that when we talk about the movement, we talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit. The spirit is moving in power, in changing hearts and changing lives, and uh, that's what we see here. So obviously what they did was according to the will of God in wisdom and, uh, and the men they chose were full of the spirit and of faith so these men were controlled by the spirit of God as well so without the spirit of God we're not going to see any, anything done uh, in, our, in our churches the spirit of God is a, is a, is a, a main and, and, and necessary ingredient to see a work done. If the Spirit of God is in it, it's going to be flourishing. If He's not in it, then it's going to die out.
So in verse 8, so Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs amongst the people. What can be said about that? Seems to be a confirmation of what you see at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Mm -hmm. It says uh, in verse 19 of the, the last chapter of Mark, it says, So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord, working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Another indication that God was very much at work amongst them. <clears throat> When it says among the people that would have been the Jewish people. So, and it doesn't just say miracles, it does say that, but it says also signs. So, the Lord did miracles when he was here. He spoke <coughs> miracle, and sign is a miracle with a message. And so, this continued, and that continues till chapter, the end of chapter 7, where it's specific where there is a specific message to the Jewish people. They still have a... Here it is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. In, in the Gospels, it's the testimony of the Son. And of, of course, of the Spirit as well. But specifically, the Holy Spirit here. The working of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And they reject that too, as we will see in chapter 7. <coughs> So the men from chapter 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, uh, there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. So synagogue there is in the singular. So all these men were part of the synagogue uh, in Cilicia. It was... It was uh, said that it was probably the same synagogue as Saul of Tarsus came from since he was from Cilicia Saul, Saul of Tarsus so that's probably one reason why we see these guys putting their clothes at the feet of Saul of Tarsus later on, chapter 7 <clears throat> maybe there's other thoughts there says that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Like, uh, like it was mentioned in the questions, like uh, these, the Lord Jesus told them that they, when they would be brought up before magistrates and before, before uh, rulers, that 
They didn't have to worry about what they would have to say. That the Spirit of God would give them the words right then and there. And here, the these people are like in the same position as the people that were standing before the Lord Jesus in many instances, that they just couldn't resist the wisdom and the authority by which the Lord Jesus was speaking. And we see here the same with his, his, his servant, Stephen. I think it's important to understand that the word wisdom means how you use your knowledge. It's not the same as knowledge, but it's how you use your knowledge. It could be in our actions. But here I think for Stephen, he not only knew the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament at that time, of course. They knew the scriptures from the Old Testament, and he knew how to use them to make it very clear about the truth of what he was saying. And these men just, they were founded. They couldn't uh, argue. <laughs> In Luke 21, 14, this might be what you're referring to, Jesus tells them, Settle, therefore in your minds, do not meditate beforehand how to answer, for I'll give you a mouth and, and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And so I, I wonder if Luke kind of chose his words carefully in Acts 6 to kind of reflect back to Jesus' words, he wrote both books, obviously. Yeah. It's interesting that what the, what the uh, scholars quoted back in the day in the Middle Ages when Martin Luther was brought before the emperor there were many people that were standing there and they were saying <coughs> words to him before he would come to the emperor and they quoted that, those verses so there have been many times throughout the centuries where that promise of the Lord Jesus was fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that promise is with us too. And so, and just a little practical lesson, if most Christians don't, don't witness because they're too scared, and they think they might not know what to say. Now, it's, it's a good thing to be prepared, but if, if the Lord gives you an opportunity to tell the gospel, you have to trust him too. Maybe that's where the faith comes in here as well. He was full of faith. You see, there's a lot of Christians. We are believers, but we have a lot of unbelief. We don't trust the Lord. Trust the Lord for eternity, but we don't trust him for today. Just a practical note is that if we don't know the Word of God, we don't study the Word of God, we don't know the Word of God, we don't memorize the Word of God, the Spirit of God doesn't have as much material to work with. Like, He will bring back to our memory verses that sometimes we don't even realize we knew. <laughs> and and or, or that we wouldn't remember if we tried, but at right at the right moment, at the right temperature time, that verse comes to our mind. And, and we, we will share with people. So, but if we don't fill our minds with the Word of God, we're not giving the Spirit of God much chances to, uh, to, use, to use the Word of God with us if we don't know it. But I know in the case of Stephen, he didn't have the New Testament, but he had the Old Testament. And he, he shows us very clearly in chapter 7 that he knew it 
very well, and uh, and and he knew the, the the chronology of it, and and the spirit of God really used him in a very mighty way in chapter seven in, in that speech. I think sometimes if we're a bit um, afraid what to say to people or how we're going to say it, um, we know the word of God. We don't have to always have some special way, some gimmick, you know, some way to talk to people, you know, to try to get their attention. You, you know, truly have to introduce ourselves perhaps or get some conversation going. But I think the important thing is give them the word of God. Give them scripture. Because that's the best... Uh, evangelistic tool of scripture. We can get all kinds of fancy sayings and statements, but scripture is God's word, and that to me is, is important. I think it's important too is that we we use the word of God carefully and not in a haughty and proud way to try to cut people's ears off but to use the Word of God in, with grace and wisely, but with grace and with the kindness uh, that people might see the Lord Jesus in us. Like I think that's what they saw here. You're going to see that later. He appeared to them as if he had the, the face of an angel. It's not that he was a weakling and, and, and no. It was more like he had authority but he had kindness and he had grace and, and probably love in, in his face. That these people were not scaring him, but they were, he, he really cared for these people. Verse that comes to mind is in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, peradventure God give them salvation and knowledge yes. of the truth. So they didn't like Stephen, obviously. So they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, which was a false accusation. And then they stirred up the people against him, the elders, the scribes, and they came and seized him and brought him to the council. So that's kind of a repeat of what happened to the Lord Jesus. It's, a, it's going to happen to the Apostle Paul later on. False accusations against, against the people of God. So why, why would they come up with those false accusations? Or misunderstandings, kind of willfully, if you, if you, if you would say. <coughs> They have nothing to say legitimately, so they are trying to find another way to stop them, <coughs> shut them down. Again, much like the priests when the Lord Jesus was here, they felt they, they had a lot to lose. They, you know, if they bought into what 
Stephen was preaching and the, the whole hierarchy of the priesthood and all the power that they had was in jeopardy. It kind of makes me think here when you, when you hear or read it about uh, a great company of the priests also were obedient to the faith. You can't help but wonder where were these guys when this disputing was going on? Did anybody come to Stephen's help? You don't hear any of that. It's just did they all hold back and let Stephen you know, take the, uh, the threat of this, this the mob. ganging up in the mob? Because, uh, I mean, there were priests here. Obviously, they would have been known. They're kind of silent. But I think, again, there was a threat to the whole hierarchy of that uh, religious group. Yeah. Now, it could be that like you see, for example, in Luke chapter 1, where Zacharias was one of those priestly orders. So there was a rotation over 24 orders of priests. That there is a difference between those priests of those 24 orders that serve every so often when their turn came up. That they are a different group than what is in the Gospels called, or in the Acts called, chief priests. They were actually mostly Sadducees and it seems to be in the Acts that the Sadducees took the lead against the apostles because of the preaching of the resurrection which they did not believe so um, those ordinary priests <coughs> did not really have power to go against what these chief priests we're trying to implement or trying to do. So uh, I guess they could have defended him, but the, the power was with the priests and the, the Sanhedrin. And that's actually what it is. Uh, when it says in the council, in verse 12, it's the council, it's the, it's the leaders. And so it's actually very serious. There were, very, there were many people, that many Jews that got saved. As a matter of fact, if you go to Acts 21, uh, they say to Paul, there are myriads, which is, means ten thousands of believers. Ten thousands. And yet it was the, the leaders that rejected, that took the lead in rejecting the Lord Jesus. And because of the leaders' lead, the nation of Israel, at that time at least, they missed out on the offer that God had given to the Jewish people. So the leadership is actually it's a big responsibility, but it's it's pretty serious. I mean the leadership, let's say leadership of a church, leadership of a nation, can lead a whole country astray or lead people astray. And I, I think here I think here these these chief priests and all the leaders, they were the ones that instigated all this. You could ask yourself, why were there many of the priests that got saved? Maybe they were the ones that saw the, the veil coming down when the Lord died. Because I read a story that it's actually in the Talmud that in the decades between that event and the destruction of Jerusalem, there were many strange things happening like the doors would suddenly close. And that's in Talmud. So they were not 
kindly disposition uh, disposed towards the Christian faith. There were many strange things happening. And maybe all those things contributed towards the priest saying, you know, this, this must be the truth. Who knows? Obviously, some of these priests were on the fence for a while and uh, finally made a choice. And then, like you say, they were threatened. We realize we're losing more and more people here. We have to do something. And this synagogue from all these guys from Cilicia, they were the zealous guys. And Saul was part of them. To go against, hard, against the Christians. We see that in chapter 7 and 8. And then Paul gets saved in chapter 9. Yeah, in support of uh, them being in the bushes, I was looking in the Gospel of John chapter 12. It says there nevertheless among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Mm -hmm. these, these rulers, I don't know if we're saying some of the same group here, and they're kind of sitting back and now all of a sudden they confess the Lord and got saved. <coughs> So there, he's accused of speaking against Moses and against God and also, I think, against the temple. Uh, I'm not sure I thought I saw that, but maybe not. So actually, everything that Moses had prophesied was being accomplished in the person of the Lord Jesus. A prophet like me will rise up amongst the people, and here he is. So, instead of speaking against Moses, he's actually confirming the words of Moses. But they are looking at it from the wrong angle. I think you were looking for 30, verse 13 there. It says, uh, speaking blasphemy, there's words against the, this holy place. Yes, yes. And the law, yeah. So it's obviously false witnesses that they speak blasphemous words against the whole this holy place and the law. And then verse 14 that we have heard him say that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the custom which Moses delivered to us. So the the fact that the Lord Jesus had told them that there was something greater than greater there than the temple, and that the temple was kind of losing its use, uh, they didn't like that either. I guess we don't really know what he actually spoke. What did he? Have? What, is, what was his message? I mean, obviously they were accusing false things. Yeah, this, uh, to this point, yeah. We don't actually know what he was saying. It just says he was he was full of faith, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. We could not resist what he said, but we don't even know what he really said. Like, but obviously this was a false charge, whatever it was. Yeah. But Serge, I think you're hitting on something very important about this whole book, going back to some of our introductory chapters. We kind of dealt with the transition of Judaism having to deal with the deity of Christ. I don't want to, obviously that's so much of the next chapter 
but we do hear the clear teaching of Stephen on what the actual use of the temple is, which is rendered at the end of it as obsolete now. God does not dwell in high places or holy places. Yeah. But in verse 48 and 49 <coughs> of the next chapter, doesn't deal, um, doesn't dwell in places made by man, but of course he dwells in every believer. And to the priesthood, what Jacques had said earlier, of course this was obviously on their mind because they're accusing him of this, and then Stephen will speak a sermon on it. They saw themselves as doing the job. This was huge, a huge transition from all their culture that now there's someone claiming to be God in the flesh, and now the temple is obsolete, there is no use for it, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. That's a huge turning point in conversion of people on the gospel being shared. And these Pharisees were in uh, risk of losing all the power that they had. And throughout the history of Israel, you see that again and again, everybody that God would send, the prophets, to speak to the nation of Israel were always turned away by the people in power. <coughs> It's interesting if you, this last few verses, if you compare that with the Old Testament, when they say, uh, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the law. And then in verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So they, the place. The building became more important than God Himself. And if you go to Jeremiah 7, it says there that the Lord says to Jeremiah in verse 2, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So he had to go to the temple. And then he says in verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And then you drop down, to, if you drop down to verse 11. Uh, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh. So that would have been in the days of Samuel and uh, Eli, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you've done all these works, said the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early speaking, but you did not hear and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, and so on. So what we find here then, that's actually the third time this is happening. It happened in Shiloh, it happened with Solomon's temple in the days of Jeremiah, and it happens about here now, in Acts, and then of course the destruction of the temple came about, you know, 35 years later or so. The same thing. And the place, all the buildings, all the all the the stuff around it becomes more important than God Himself. And and that again is a lesson for us too. You know, our traditions, our what is familiar to us, it could become more important 
than God himself. The heart is gone. It can happen. But the heart is gone. And all we have left is the shell. And that's what happened here. Reminded in, there's a, a little story in Zechariah chapter 7 about um, they were fasting for 70 years, uh, different, different fasts towards the temple, and Zechariah rebukes him. He says, They asked, they asked him, Should we continue to do this, this, this fasting? For 70 years they did it. And uh, Zechariah rebukes him. He says, When you fast, who is it unto? Because it became tradition, and it wasn't unto, basically. He was saying it's not unto God anymore. It's just your tradition. You're just doing it because you're doing it. And he rebuked them for that. And I think it's the same line here. We can do things just because we do it all the time, and that's a danger that we, we have to be careful. With. Routine and mechanics are dangerous. <clears throat> we have to keep our hearts in check all the time. I think it's important here too to a practical lesson. What do we do when we get opposed? How do we deal with that? And I think the Lord is teaching in Luke uh, 21. He says this to the disciples. He says, before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and rulers for my, for my sake. But it will turn out for you as an upper occasion for testimony. And uh, then he says, therefore settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand what you will answer, and I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the teaching of the Lord, which Stephen was following, and they couldn't resist him, but uh, the opposition was an opportunity for testimony. And sometimes we think opposition, well that's terrible, we'll run away from it. Maybe we should be giving testimony instead of running away. <coughs> Stephen is a real testimony of, of an accomplishment of what the Lord said to the disciples. And, and then we see that he, he, it says in verse 15 that, and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Uh, I was thinking, and I'm sure there's, you know, there could be many other thoughts about that, but that he had, when it says that he appeared to them like the face of an angel, it was like he has a turn, and it was not with haughtiness or arrogance, but with grace and kindness and love. Maybe there's other thoughts on that to close. It's interesting that one of their charges is that he's going to change the customs that Moses delivered to them. And one of the things that they were willing to do is bear false witness against him, which is one of the Ten Commandments that Moses delivered. Like, they were breaking one of the laws and then charging him with change, like, and then just the contrast with him, the face of an angel, like, Moses had to veil his face because it was, you know, so brightly because of the tabernacle. And here we see Stephen having this same kind of face. It's almost like that contrast like, look what you're accusing him of and then and then look who he is mm -hmm. Moses was failed because I think he says because he was in the presence of God that he the was glory of God was shining so I think maybe that's kind of what I see as well that he was in the presence of God maybe like what he was saying was true but all these Pharisees had nothing 
case. He was obviously reflecting God, reflecting the Lord Jesus, I think. So that's the whole purpose of Christianity. God wants to reproduce His Son in us. And I believe that Stephen was an example of a Christ-like disciple of the Word.